Most of us work in organizations where, at the very least, it's espoused that we should engage employees and create a great work environment. But few firms actually do this well. On this episode, how to practically engage employees using the principles of Management 3.0 and also create happiness for the people you lead. This is Coaching for Leaders, Episode 276. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And I'm so glad that you joined me today. I have uh, with us today a leadership expert that I know will really uh, get us thinking about how to manage more effectively, how to create happiness in the workplace, and also uh, how to really become uh, more effective at engagement. And my guest today is Jurgen Apollo. He calls himself a creative networker. And since 2008, Jurgen has penned a popular blog at noop.nl covering the creative economy, agile management, and personal development. He's the author of Management 3.0, the best-selling agile management text. And he's also the author of the new book, the proactive follow-up for that, Managing for Happiness. And he's also the founder of the Management 3.0 workshops. Jurgen is the CEO of the business network Happy Melly and co-founder of the Agile Lean Europe Network, and the Stos Network for Better Leaders. Inc.com has called him a top 50 leadership expert, a top 50 leadership innovator, and a top 100 great leadership speaker. And Jurgen, I'm so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Hey, Dave. It's, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Well, I think probably the first question that I think some of our audience is wondering about and hearing the title of your first book, Management 3.0, is it probably begs the question of, what is management 3.0? And then what was management 1.0 and 2.0? Could you frame those three different buckets for us? Of course. Um, I, I use those version numbers as, as metaphors. You have to understand that I'm originally uh, from, from software uh, engineering. I'm a, I'm a software developer by heart, basically. Uh, so version numbers uh, comes naturally to me. And uh, for me, management 1.0 is, uh, is traditional management. Some people would refer to it as command and control uh, uh, style uh, management uh, that many people agree with uh, is, is not working very well anymore in the 21st century. Management 2.0 is, is uh, trying to be more uh, humane, uh, to, to see, uh, as some people say, our, 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 our people are our best assets or something like that. Um, it is well intended, but there's still a hierarchy in, in that thinking and, and people are still referred to as resources quite often, uh, even with the best intentions. Um, I see management 3.0 as, uh, as uh, based on, on, on complexity science, systems thinking, 
uh, seeing the, the the organization as a complex adaptive system, as as uh, the scientists, uh, researchers say, and uh, it is uh, it is really trying to get rid of the hierarchical thinking and seeing the organization as a network. The hierarchy does have its place here and there, but primarily it is a network of people collaborating, and uh, so that's that's how I use aversion numbers as as metaphors for different ways of seeing and treating the organization. That, that's really helpful. And I'm wondering if maybe uh, I can get a sense of how something would fit into that. Uh, you know, one of the things I've seen over the last few years is the word here in, in the States, and I'm, I'm sure in a lot of business cultures in, in Europe too, that engagement has become the big buzzword. And uh, I've seen a number of situations now over the years, um, and especially in the last few years, where Someone is asked in an organization who's a leader about how they engage employees and how they make employees happy and how they're taking care of people. And almost inevitably, the example will come back, well, uh, within the last few months, we did an employee lunch and we got everyone together and we fed them and the, the managers in the company handed out food to everyone and we did a nice presentation and that is uh, that is cited as the you know kind of our, our what we did for employee engagement uh, this year <laughs> or this quarter, and uh, it's not that that's a bad thing, but it it always when I hear that as the example and then there's not a follow up, I always I always find that a little bit lacking, and and I'm just kind of wondering uh, with an example like that, I'm I'm curious if you've seen that and how that fits into that that 3.0 thinking. Well, uh, that's that's definitely a good uh, good example. I've experienced it myself, where, where I remember sitting in a lunchroom uh, with 100 colleagues and then getting uh, being bombarded with PowerPoint presentations by top management of of everything that they have done for the organization and trying to uh, convince us. Uh, uh, that the numbers were really good and things like that. And it was all well intended, uh, trying to get us involved and asking for our opinions. But it was still management standing there, uh, uh, rolling these PowerPoint presentations all over the, uh, the, the, the employees. And I consider that management 2.0. That's, that's, there's, there's good intentions there. At least they're trying to get everyone involved. But there's still a hierarchy, a difference between, between people. And I can give you another example um, uh, that I often share in, during my, my, my keynote speeches is that I once invited colleagues to my house for dinner and I, I picked random people from the list, really random people like two programmers, an account manager, uh, a system administrator, uh, the HR director. And when they arrived at my house, I told them, and now you do the cooking. <laughs> and then they they had to cook in my kitchen while I had prepared everything. The recipes were there, all the groceries. I fetched the groceries beforehand, uh, the kitchen utensils, everything was in place. But they had to do the cooking with each other. And I served them drinks. I was truly the servant uh, leader there. And it was great fun. They they, they loved it. And then we, we did that six or seven times. And I got questions from others in the organization. Hey, I heard people have been cooking for you at your house. That's insane. Uh, when is it my turn? I can cook. So <laughs> word great. got around. And this was this was silly. It was playful. It was human. I shared my kitchen. I did. I cleaned everything up afterwards. And I leveled the playing field. Basically, there was no hierarchy anymore. And I allowed them to excel and, and be productive and collaborate uh, with each other in my kitchen. They had to they had to self-organize at the spot, decide who was going to do the desserts, who was going to do the appetizers. And it was it was great fun. And I'll call that 
a simple uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, example of, of management 3.0. There was no hierarchy, but there was happiness and playfulness and, and productivity, of course. Otherwise, we couldn't eat. I love that example and the distinction between the two. And as you said, that the management 2.0, it's well-intended. And I've seen that a lot, too. And I think in most organizations that I see these days, uh, there is a lot of really good intention of engaging people. But like you said, it it, it often stops short. It's that top-down Here's what we're going to do. Here's the presentation. Here's the uh, here's the event that we've kind of scripted out. Uh, versus what you just described of engaging people, really getting them involved. And uh, I, I love that perspective. And I, I'm I'm curious also about. I, I've heard in your work you making the statement: manage the system for happiness. Offer products with meaning. Tell us about that. Yeah, so there's actually uh, two different things that I find important. The first part is managing the system. Uh, I mentioned systems thinking and, and, and complex adaptive systems. I, I'm, I'm really into the scientific background of how social systems work, and an organization is just another social system. And in my opinion, uh, managers are responsible for managing that system and not the people in it. Uh, to go back to that to that analogy of my kitchen, I managed the kitchen basically, but I did not decide uh, who would prepare which dish. They could do that themselves, and they could help each other out. I had I was not involved in the actual cooking, but I did manage the environment so that they had fun and were able to be productive together. And I often say that if if you end up managing people, then probably you did something wrong. Uh, somewhere down the line that you had to, it's, it's like acting in, in, in failure mode. You don't want to be there. You don't want to be having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a person asking them, um, why are you so unhappy? Because then you're already too late. Apparently something in the organization was not managed well so that a person is ends up being being unhappy. So I prefer seeing it as, as managing the system, the environment that is my responsibility, and then people can manage themselves and they can manage each other as self-organizing teams. So that's the first part. And then the second part, what you refer to is, is, is build products and service for, uh, services for meaning. Um, well, I'm not the only one who says, uh, it starts with why, as Simon Sinek says in his book and, and TED Talk. Uh, others say, uh, um, uh, uh, what, uh, what, 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 is, what is it the world would miss if your organization wasn't there? We have to, we have to offer something of value to, to the world. And it's not just making a profit that we're after in, in, in organizations and businesses. We want to make a contribution to the world. And that is what I mean by, by meaning and, and purpose of the, of the organization. So, yeah, uh, manage the system for, uh, for meaning. That is how you could summarize the, the thinking. You've used the analogy of looking at managers as gardeners, which I think speaks to exactly what you just said. Uh, how, do, how is management like gardening? Well, it's a metaphor that sadly I, I did not come up with myself. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one that I borrowed from others. It has been used before, but I, indeed I truly like it because it is, again, an example of managing the, the system. The gardener takes care not of the growing of the plants. Uh, they do that pretty much for themselves, basically. But you have to take care of the nutrition in the soil and, and uh, enough sunlight and keep the predators out and remove the weeds 
uh, and translating to organizations that would be uh, um, uh, removing uh, or, or intervening when there are bad behaviors and things like that. That's what management is about. Um, but ultimately, the people can take care of their own productivity and and uh, and everything. So um, yeah, I, I like that metaphor of the of the gardener. You you tend to the garden, which is the the, the system, the organization, and all the growing that, that that happens. If you do that, if you do it well, you don't have to pull on the plants and say grow, grow, because that doesn't work in a garden. It also doesn't work in an organization. People can do their own growing. And uh, it, there just needs to be a gardener, someone who takes care of that environment. I know for a lot of our listeners, uh, they're probably resonating with a lot of things you're saying. And, and also at the same time, they're thinking, my organization is not really that organization yet where we're having self-organizing teams or we have the culture around that. And, and so I'm curious about what are some of the strategies that a leader who wants to manage more for happiness and really look at things more through the management 3.0 lens that they could start with. And, I, and you identify a number of uh, what you call silver bullets in your work. And I'm, I'm wondering if we could examine a couple of those. And, 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 and as a starting point for someone who wants to help their organization make this shift, um, is there one in particular that you, when you're going into an organization that you ask organizations to start first, or does it vary depending on situation? It is very, very much context dependent, uh, Dave, as far as I'm concerned. It is like we all want to climb uh, similar mountains, but we're all standing on different sides, so the paths are, are, are different. And uh, so I, I, in, in my work, I always try to focus on concrete practices, like my, my, my last book, uh, Managing for Happiness, has only very concrete stuff that you can do the very next day. And the, the, the first chapter starts with a kudo box, for example. That is uh, a, a practice that I found at a number of companies uh, where they have uh, a simple box. It could be uh, a cardboard box or whatever where people drop tokens of appreciation, kudo cards, just handwritten thank you notes for each other. They drop them in the box and then uh, maybe once per week or something, the box is emptied and everyone who received the card from someone else gets a little present from, from management. It could be a, a, a dinner for two or a box of chocolates or a bunch of flowers or whatever. People can sometimes pick and choose of, of the little presents uh, sometimes there's just one winner picked from 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 all the cards, and that person uh, gets a slightly more expensive present or something like that. Um, the company where I've seen these this practice being used, uh, they they always say that it has significant impact on the culture of of the organization because basically you're incentivizing people to thank each other, and there's actually. Uh, uh, it has impact because there's a little gift attached and that is important that there should be something of value added to the card because that makes it tangible that makes it real um, and uh, and that's just one example it is very easy to do and even more important you don't even have to ask managers for for that permission to start with a kudo box I mean without the the, the presence uh, you can you can start it as any any team you could uh, you could uh, set up a box or or could a wall as some organizations have where they make the cards visual on on a, on the whiteboard or something 
and then uh, basically incentivize people to give each other uh, thank you notes. And that's, that's just one of the many examples that you could start with. But what works for one company may not work for another because as I've learned from complexity uh, science, um, it is all context dependent. So maybe another company has to start with one of the other practices that I found uh, or, or invented in, in, in some cases. You just never know. You, you just have to experiment. I, I love that example too. And uh, I think it brings up a couple of questions for me. Um, one of them is you said something that strikes me as so key is that the gift or the reward or the recognition is something tangible. Why is it so important that it's tangible? Because I think that's something that a lot of leaders and organizations don't latch on to. Yeah, well, it's an interesting, uh, an interesting topic indeed. I uh, the the card is if you have physical cards that it, they by themselves are already tangible. I I have used kudo cards in workshops, for example, and people have have shown me uh, the cards that they received years ago when they when they attended a workshop and they still kept the cards because they appreciated receiving the card so much. Um, that is something that I noticed that the physical cards make a difference because you can touch them, you can hold them, they are tactile. But uh, there are also systems that allow you to do this uh, virtually. There's online kudo boxes, for example, or online systems where you can give each other thank yous. And uh, that means that everything is virtual. It also means in a psychological way that the thank you also becomes virtual, which could be meaningless, uh, perhaps for some people. And that is why researchers have found that if you add something of value, that is, uh, it could be money, it could be a present, something that, that is more than just a thank you note, then uh, such practices have a higher chance of, of succeeding. And, uh, and that, is, uh, that is, of course, in, uh, important. So uh, something to consider is is having some tangible result for every thank you that you uh, offer some uh, offer someone. I like the way you articulated uh, thinking about climbing the mountain and depending on where you're standing on the mountain, the path to the top is going to be really different and the strategies will be really different. And so thinking about that in the context of something like a kudo box, uh, What's a time that maybe an organization or a leader wouldn't want to do that or would want to start off with something different that would be an indicator to you to say, you know, let's let's try a different tactic? Gosh, I don't know. Um, I had a few people tell me that the kudo box didn't work for them and then they tried some other practice that did work. Um, I have never really found what the specific patterns were across organizational cultures where such things don't work. I mean, it... it it could be that there is a history of being being uh, very serious and that people have difficulty expressing their appreciation for each other's work in a in a playful manner which is basically what you're asking with with colorful uh, thank you notes so uh, yeah it could be that something else is uh, is is needed uh, that is that can be more effective and practice that my team uses, for example, I have my own little company of, of 10 people, is called merit money or, or peer-to-peer crediting. We give each other points. Uh, every month we start with 100 points and uh, throughout the month we have to get rid of our points, basically, crediting each other for great behaviors and, and good contributions to the performance of the company. And if we don't use all our points by the end of the month, then pff, they're gone because we start again with 100 
It's like a, a vote in the democratic system. Every month you have 100 points. And then the points that we receive from each other, those are used to be converted into real bonus money. So there's uh, bonus money set aside depending on the performance of the whole company. And I, as the business owner, decide how much it is. So every month we add something to the jackpot, so to speak. And then every now and then we we do the payout depending on the points, the credits that people received from uh, from each other. Well, this is uh, perhaps slightly more serious um, because it is not uh, colorful uh, th- handwritten uh, thank you notes, but it is actual money basically that we're paying each other. And sometimes this could be the more effective approach for organizations where a kudo card doesn't work, then maybe try peer-to-peer crediting with, with an online tool and uh, and add some bonus money or whatever into the mix. You'll just have to experiment and see what works for you. Well, and that, uh, that just is so much in alignment with your work. I mean, I know one of the practices you suggest for leaders is to run experiments. And I, I think sometimes the tendency of some leaders and organizations is they try something like like a kudo box or whatever the strategy is, and it doesn't work, and they don't or they don't get the the results they wanted, and then they kind of throw up their hands and say, "Well, you know what? Our team just isn't into that, or it's not going to work here," and they don't take that second or third step to try something else. And so I, I love that advice of don't stop necessarily uh, if something's not working. Try a different try a different tactic or a different strategy to really find what's going to resonate with your team because it's so complex in organizations and knowing what's going to work and what isn't, isn't it? It is. And and my point is always that there are no best practices. There are only good practices that have worked for a good number of other people. But to see if they work in your context, you'll just have to try and, and run an experiment. So everything that works elsewhere is an experiment for you to see if it works in, in with your organizational culture. There are no guarantees and uh, and therefore there are no single silver uh, silver bullets. And the experimentation is is crucial. We see that in, in movements such as Agile and Lean and, and others that are all about uh, running experiments in short cycles. Well, I always say if that happens in product development and in service delivery, we have to apply that to management as well. We have to experiment with the way we run our organization, try things. And uh, I specifically set up my little company as my own little laboratory, so to speak. My, uh, my, my colleagues know that, they're, that they are my guinea pigs uh, and that we run experiments on each other. Uh, and, and we love that. That is, that is why people join because, the, because we do so many silly things and, and, and interesting things that other people haven't even thought of yet. And, and half of those experiments fail because that's the point of running experiment. You don't know what is going to work. Yeah. Uh, actually, information theory says that your learning is optimal when half of your experiments fail uh, is, is something that I have, uh, I have picked up. So, uh, yeah, we have to innovate in the way we run our business as managers. And that requires experimentation with practices that we picked up from elsewhere. I've heard a similar message from a few other leaders in software development and, and folks like you, uh, Jurgen, who have been so influential in thinking about different ways to lead and structure organizations that are building software. And I, I just, I'm, I'm kind of struck by how much the rest of us really need to learn from that, of, of applying that so many other places of and products and services. Of, it just seems in so many organizations, we have such a fear 
a failure still. Um, and, and, I, and I see software development just really kind of at the cutting edge of kind of changing the dynamic on that. And yet for a lot of organizations, that's just, that's just a real challenge. And I'm, I'm curious, when you're working with organizations that do have a fear around failure and, and, and trying new things, um, is there something that you find that is helpful often to get the leadership team and or employees starting to think about just getting more comfort with that? Well, it's a good question. Uh, one thing that I offer in, in my book is what I call a celebration grid. It is a visualization of the difference between um, uh, uh, mistakes and good practices and between uh, success and failure. Because a mistake is not the same thing as a, as a failure. Uh, a mistake is something is is a is a is a practice that you know is probably not going to work, but you're doing it anyway. That is why it is a mistake. But some mistakes actually succeed. Uh, some of the greatest inventions in the, on the planet have emerged because someone made a stupid mistake somewhere. Uh, with a, the pacemaker, for example, was invented because someone inserted a, a resistor the wrong way around and mm. was trying to uh, measure heartbeat, and then the device started to mimic heartbeat. Well, uh, that is a mistake that led to a success. And uh, with, with this celebration grid that is hard to describe uh, orally, of course, uh, I try to emphasize that you're trying to hit the various spots on that grid and experimentation is in the middle. And if you only celebrate success, that is dangerous because most organizations only celebrate successes. They, they, they pat people on the, on the backs for achieving new contracts, getting new contracts signed or, or, or sales are through the roof or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with celebrating those successes. But if that is the only thing why you're celebrating those successes, then who is going to run the experiments? Because nobody dares to run experiments because with experiments, half of the time they fail. And it is easy to see from the diagram that the learning is optimal when you're in the middle, when you're running experiments. And innovation is all about increased learning. So the message is then clear to uh, managers that uh, innovation will, will come to a stop. If you just uh, incentivize people only to have success, you will basically stop innovation. Uh, and that is a huge problem. And nowadays, it is top of mind among most organizational leaders I have found. Everyone needs to know uh, how do we innovate at a faster pace? Well, run more experiments. That is the best thing that you can do. I, I believe uh, Jeff Bezos of, of Amazon has, has said that uh, the, the thing to do for managers is to optimize the number of experiments that we can run in the shortest amount of time. Well, that is the philosophy that allowed Amazon to grow as big as they are right now by increasing the number of experiments that they're running. So. If Amazon does that, it cannot hurt for other businesses to do uh, to have a similar approach to experimentation. Oh, and expectations is really everything on that. That strategy s strikes me as really powerful of of checking out. I mean, getting your book, of course, and and getting that grid and really looking at it visually and starting to frame communication to a team and an organization around. Hey, we should be populating this grid. It's not just about celebrating the successes, but but really the way to innovate is to uh, make sure we're hitting all those areas. I think if I'm hearing you right. 
Exactly, exactly, and it means uh, that that if you ro- only run, uh, if you only repeat good practices, you have an almost guaranteed uh, high uh, success rate because the good practices are are good practices for a reason, of course, and hierarchies are great at repeating the same good practices. But uh, in the middle, we find the experimentation, and that is what networks are great at. Uh, that is where we find the complex adaptive systems. Uh, those are great at exploring new opportunities, while uh, uh, hierarchies are good at exploiting existing opportunities. And uh, they, the, the, the experts nowadays call that the ambidextrous organization, the organization that is both left-handed and right-handed, so to speak. It can do both exploitation of current business models and exploration of new business models. That is hard, doing both of those. And that means that you need to be both a network and a hierarchy at the same time. Uh, John Cotter in his work, uh, in his book Accelerate, called it the dual operating system. Do well what you have already been doing, and at the same time, uh, uh, learn what you have to be doing uh, tomorrow. And that means, indeed, of filling the entire celebration grid, uh, celebrating all parts, not only the successes, but also what you learned from your experiments, even when half of those experiments fail. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned Cotter. We had him on the show about six months ago, and he made that exact point. I was thinking about that as you were saying awesome. that, of, <laughs> of it just the, the power of, and we keep hearing this again and again and again, that if, you, if the organization is just doing things the way they've always done it and just doing the best practices, that's fine if nothing ever changes. <laughs> but of course, our environment, customers, the industry, the economy is always changing, always growing. There's always new things happening. And so the importance of experimentation that you've articulated just, just strikes me as so critical for organizations, especially small and medium-sized organizations today who are, are wanting to innovate and grow. It just seems like just a necessity right now. Exactly. And I think businesses such as Amazon and Netflix are great examples of that. It is said that Netflix has difficulty drawing their organizational structure because it's basically a big mess. It is one big wire, uh, ball of wire, that how they how they work together. But they have their own little hierarchies around some repeatable business processes and yeah, that works if you have a hierarchy for that. That it makes it efficient, but overall, the company needs to be effective at that, developing new ideas and 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 exploring new things. So uh, that's that's how I yeah how I agree with with Cotter and this dual operating system. We need to be a, a network primarily, but there's also room for hierarchies for existing business models. Exploit them as much as we can to until they are until they're gone, and then hopefully we have a new idea ready. You've mentioned embracing playfulness a couple of times during our conversation, and uh, it's actually something one of our mastermind members was curious about who has uh, looked into your work and, and likes it. And, and he was wondering how you encourage an organization or, or a, a leadership team even to embrace playfulness in a place where a lot of people may think that playfulness doesn't necessarily belong in the workplace. When you run into that or the, the consultants that you advise run into that, are there things that you find are helpful in, in moving down that path or of trying a different tactic? Well, uh, a good question, Dave. It, it, it reminds me of, of uh, what Seth Godin uh, said with being a purple cow. Um, you want to be remarkable, but uh, you still want to be a cow among the other cows. You don't want to be a, a, a sheep among the cows because then you're too weird. Then you're, you're, then you're not one, one among us, right? 
And that also applies to organizations and playfulness, uh, in my opinion. You, you want to do things that are slightly weird, given the culture that you already have. And that, that means you, you don't want to uh, you want to don't want to deviate too much from the line because then then you're not one of us anymore. And uh, some organizations are already very playful, so people can go to extremes and and still be considered one of us. But indeed, some organizations are very traditional and very uh, hierarchical, perhaps where um, I don't know, not wearing a tie is already considered quite playful, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I remember it was a long time ago, but I remember I was a consultant like 20 years ago at a bank and everyone, everyone was required to wear a tie. And I, wor I worked there for, for six months. And uh, um, I will tell you what tie I wore, Dave. I wore a Winnie the Pooh tie. <laughs> <laughs> That I, <laughs> that I bought awesome. that I bought at a Disney store somewhere in the US because I wanted to be different. I wanted to be remarkable and I wanted to be playful. And that was the only freedom that I had, the color of my tie. And I thought, <laughs> I'm going to show you that I'm not <laughs> exactly the same as everyone else here. And of course, it was within the constraints. I, I still wore a tie, but it was a very colorful Winnie the Pooh tie. Actually, Eeyore was on it, if I remember well, uh, and the little, <laughs> the little donkey. Um, and um, yeah, that's how I could play, be playful within within those quite stringent uh, constraints in that culture. I really like those two words of slightly weird. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when, when I started working for Dale Carnegie years ago, I, similar thing, it was suit and tie and any color shirt you want as long as it was white. And uh, I remember... <laughs> showing up one day with a, a just a light blue shirt on and a tie and and you wouldn't believe how many people commented on it <laughs> right <laughs> but like you said it was just slightly weird enough that uh people exactly. noticed but but still mm -hmm. technically was within the requirements so that's right. uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that's really good advice uh, one thing i'm always curious about of our guests when i speak to them Jurgen, is uh, you know leadership's all about learning and growth of course as, as you're immersed in uh, what's something that you believe Believe today or hold true today that you didn't believe or maybe even recognize five years ago? Oh, that's a nasty question, Dave. Um, <laughs> I've always been right, of course, my entire life. I've always been right. Um, no, just kidding. It, well, um, it, it sounds good to me. <laughs> um, no, the, the first thing that comes to mind is um, I am uh, I'm a freedom-loving person on the political spectrum. I am closest to what people would call a libertarian. I am very, very attached to, to my freedoms, my liberties. And uh, I must admit, in the past, I thought that that was the number one value for every person on earth, uh, that this was the most important thing for everyone. Uh, I was quite dogmatic in, in my thinking. And uh, later, I must admit, I have uh, softened a bit, though I still find freedom for myself pretty important and actually it is number one still but I do know because of reading a lot of stuff about intrinsic uh, desires and, and human motivation etc that some people are simply wired in a different way and it can be that people are motivated more by relatedness instead of instead of freedom uh, and there are other uh, intrinsic motivators and that means that they do not value personal freedom as much as I do in my context so that is something that I, that I learned. I still appreciate my freedom, but I admit that I may be different from others. 
and that uh, I should also value the choices that other people make considering their intrinsic motivation and that they sometimes more easily give up their freedom in exchange for something else that they get in return um, because they value that more. And um, yeah, that's something I think in the last couple of years that has been uh, that 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 uh, that has been more clear for me than it was in the past. Reminds me of that old principle from Dale Carnegie of try honestly to see things from the other person's point of view, and uh, just a really mature way of looking at leadership of you know holding true what we hold true, but also that uh, that acknowledgement of you know what we hold true may be really different for other people. And so I, I, right. I really, uh, yeah. Yeah, I resonate with that a lot. Uh, you're going to, I really appreciate you uh, spending time appearing on the show and all your wisdom on Management 3.0. Um, I hope folks will check out the book, Management 3.0, and also uh, check out your new book, Managing for Happiness. A lot of the things we've talked about today, and of course, the grid and all that are included in that book. Uh, so thanks again for your time and really, uh, really uh, sharing some thoughts with us. Well, thank you for the invite, Dave. Really appreciate that. Thank you again, Jurgen. The notes and resources that we mentioned in today's show will be in the weekly leadership guide coming on Wednesday. The very best way to get access to that is to activate your free membership on the Coaching for Leaders website. Just go to coachingforleaders.com and that will get you access to that. And uh, that'll come your way every Wednesday after the episodes. Uh, In addition, I am thrilled to announce today a brand new benefit for our free members and uh, and any member who signs up uh, for the free membership here going forward is I'm thrilled to tell you there is now a Coaching for Leaders member cast. That's right, a podcast that's going to be monthly in addition to this show just for members who have signed up for that free membership. And I'll tell you more about how to do that in just a moment, but the member cast is going to be a companion to the show. Nothing is changing on uh, on the normal Monday show, but it'll be in addition to and approximately once a month I'll be airing a member cast. It will be a little more of a behind the scenes personal conversation, uh, either something from me specifically, a behind the scenes, how I'm doing something with Coaching for Leaders, the show, some of the strategies and workflows I use in order to do my work that'll be helpful to you. In addition, I'll also be featuring some interviews and uh, members of our Coaching for Leaders Academy. And so if uh, that is of interest to you and you have already set up your free membership on the Coaching for Leaders website, when you log in next time, you're going to now see a big button for MemberCast. You can click on that and get access to the very first episode, which is already posted. Much more is coming soon. And if you haven't already activated your free membership, just go over to coachingforleaders.com. You can activate that immediately. You'll get the weekly leadership guide, and you'll also get access to all of the member casts, which will be posted uh, as we go. And the first one is up there. It is with one of our Academy members, Mike Birch. Uh, Mike is the chief strategy officer for Speedway Motorsports. He does a lot of work supporting NASCAR with his organization. And he has been a great member in the Coaching for Leaders Academy over the past year. And in this episode, this very first member cast, we talk through some of the strategic principles he's used to plan his year, to set goals, and how to turn goals into results. One of the things Mike has done really impressively over this last year is he's read 
believe it or not, over 200 books. And not only has he read a ton of books, but he's also been up to a ton more in his career. He just got a big promotion uh, at his organization. He walks through in this first member cast how he did it, the structure he's using to plan out his time, his goals, how he's reading so many books. Um, he's actually been the inspiration for a couple of guests coming on the show because he often reads the books and they come on his radar screen before they even come onto mine. Uh, so I think you'll really find uh, that first episode really helpful. So again, uh, if you'd like access to that, just go over to coachingforleaders.com, activate your free membership. And I'll also have a link to that in the weekly leadership guide for those of you who receive that every Wednesday. So be watching for that. By the way, you may be hearing a term there you haven't heard before, Coaching for Leaders Academy. What is that? Uh, the Coaching for Leaders Academy is the expanded version of what used to be the Coaching for Leaders Mastermind that you may have been hearing about over the last year or so. Uh, we have added a lot more to the Mastermind. We actually outgrew the name, and so we've now expanded to the Coaching for Leaders Academy. I am going to be sharing more about that in the coming weeks after the first of the year, so be watching for more information, but that is what it's about. So uh, Mike's uh, one of the folks who's been involved from the very beginning. So check that out online. And while you're on the website, you may also want to check out three of the main Coaching for Leaders episodes in our library that relate directly to my conversation today with Jurgen. Uh, first of all, check out episode 122. I had Rich Sheridan on the show talking about his book, Joy, Inc., and Rich talked about how uh, they've established a company at Menlo Innovations uh, where they really center their entire employee culture on joy and engagement. Uh, it's a fabulous conversation. Uh, it's one that I recommend often when I get questions from our community on how to really create the right culture in the workplace. Uh, di directly relates to so much we talked about today. That's episode 122. Check that out, especially if you're looking for inspiration on what you can do to change culture. Rich goes through a lot of the strategies and also the challenges that they've been through at Menlo in order to do that. Um, in addition, you're going to uh, mention Simon Sinek. Uh, he was on the show back on episode 223 and talked about uh, his book, Start With Why, uh, which is such an important conversation to listen to if you haven't heard it before. So again, that's episode 223. And then uh, we also talked about John Cotter. Uh, he was on the episode earlier uh, on the show rather earlier this year, episode 249. Uh, we talked about how to succeed with leadership and management. What's the difference between the two and why uh, should you care as an organization and as a leader to be able to know that you're making the distinction between the two and addressing both well? So go check out episode number 249 uh, if that's of interest to you. And I think you'll find a lot there from John Cotter, who's uh, probably the world's leading expert in organizational change. He's got several books out, uh, and his most recent one was featured in that episode. So again, episode 249. You can get to all the episodes in the past just by going to coachingforleaders.com slash two or slash whatever episode you're looking for more accurately 249 if it's that one and uh, that'll get you right there and next week i'm glad to welcome mariano mascara who's appearing on the show to discuss how to prevent corruption in your organization and maybe even in your industry he's a leader on this topic and uh, joins me from his country in argentina to discuss what leaders should be thinking on this and even if you may not be handling it or you're handling something more subtle than corruption, I think you'll find it a really interesting conversation. So see you next week and have a great week. Take care.